Well, good morning. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 16. If you've been following along with us, our series is the gospel mission then and now, looking at the continued ministry of Jesus Christ after he has ascended and how that is being worked out through the apostles and the foundation uh, period of the early church beginning. In chapter 16, we look at uh, the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas. If you recall, chapter 13 chronicled the first missionary journey uh, with Paul. And um, in it, at one point as he is, he is preaching, he says, Now that you judge yourselves unworthy, speaking to Jews at this point, we are turning to the Gentiles. And, and if you recall, what we looked at and really what we saw is that the gospel is for everybody. I mean, this is what, what is happening now. This has always been the plan of God to go beyond his called people, Israel, but to go to the nations, to go to the Gentiles. And so that's what we see happening. And if chapter 13 said that the gospel then was for everyone, chapter 16, what we'll read here in just a second, is proof that when the Bible says everyone, it does mean everyone. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. I'll begin in, chapter, or begin in verse 6 and go to verse 34. Verse 6. And they, uh, this would be Paul, Silas, and now they've picked up Timothy, uh, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of them and gave order to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he, the jailer, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them at the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we look at your word, as we um, see it and hear it, uh, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not, uh, that you would change us, that we may bear fruit because of your Holy Spirit and your work in our lives. We pray this for your glory alone. Amen. Well, this uh, past week, I I visited some uh, pastor friends that I, I do annually and as uh, we were spending time together and catching up and talking uh, about what's going on in our lives, two of the, of the men are, are, are pastors that work for RUF. And if you're unfamiliar with RUF, uh, RUF stands for Reform University Fellowship, and it's our denomination's college ministry. And as we were listening to both what had gone on uh, all last year and entering the, uh, the mess that is COVID and then you know, what ministry looked like. And now as we come out into the summer, the hopes of things changing on campus and, and, and hearing about his plans and expectations for what he has in front of him this fall. Uh, the leaders that he has returning. Uh, he's got this great staff that he's excited about. They've... Uh, um, just been been great and are entering more mature years, experienced years with them with him. That there were a lot of hopes and excitement for uh, what the Lord was was going or could do this fall as things returned to normal as students came back to campus. And as we were meeting there, listening to this, <laughs> he gets a text uh, finding out that the college campus that he works on has made a final decision that they are canceling school for the year. And there will be no students coming. Now, forget about what you think about that. Um, we could just see the loss, right? We see the confusion and just sort of the, um, just, I, what do I do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? I had all these plans and these expectations. I, I'm, a, I'm a campus minister that ministers to college students. And now the college that I minister to, there's not going to be more college students for this year. What do you do? Well, 
you know, for all practical purposes, uh, this feels like a train wreck, right? Uh, certainly for, for him and for those who are returning to college campuses in the same environment, perhaps even for students as well. And I think that, you know, not going too far with that metaphor, uh, it, we could say that 2020, for all respects, sometimes feels like a train wreck. Uh, maybe even looks like one at times. What is happening here? Uh, maybe you're experiencing this in your own employment. Um, maybe you have children going back to school and we don't even know what this is supposed to look like. All, right, all topics that are both um, just confusing and hard, um, personal even. And I think it's right to even sit back and say that, hey, for whatever, wherever we stand on things, where, I, where it looks to now, I don't know what God's doing. What, what are we supposed to make of all this? Where are we supposed to take it? Well, in some ways, this is where we find Paul, Silas, and Timothy on this second journey. Um, as we'll see, and, and it's both in what happens to them, but it's also in who the Lord brings in their fold to minister to as well. Um, that, that the expectations that they possibly have and the, and the ministry that they are looking to see the Lord you know, bring to them, it sometimes feels like a train wreck. And it sometimes looks like that too. But it's not. And what, where the hope of this passage comes out for us, and there's many places for it, but where I want us to draw our attention is that God is at work. And we get to see that in this passage. But we also get to trust in it in our own lives too, wherever we find ourselves today, that God is at work and he is doing what he promised to do. And what I want you to see this morning, what he, what he ultimately promises to do is to unite all things under him. And part of that is the church uniting us as believers and, and, and not our plans, not our expectations, not the things that we, we love or the other things that we don't love or, or whatever preferences we might have, but uniting us in him alone in Christ. And we see that in this chapter. And I want us to see that in the two things, see that in the two ways that we look at this chapter with the points in your bulletin, what gospel mission sometimes feels like. And what gospel mission always does. So with that, let's take that first one. What gospel mission sometimes feels like. Chapter 16 chronicles, as I said earlier, the second missionary journey of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And then you also notice Luke shows up as, as we get to one of the first we passages of Acts. You'll see him change, change that as they move on into Macedonia. But we're not there yet. Um, if you remember from chapter 15, that was the big Jerusalem council um, and the elders there, uh, you know, send Paul and Silas off again on a second journey. And the purpose of this journey um, wasn't just to, to evangelize, although that was a big part of it, or to establish churches, which is a, a huge part of it. There's also a, a part here where Paul and Silas will be uh, in some ways traveling back through some of the places that they had already established there churches and, and fellowships. And so there's a sense here where we see that they are looking forward to visiting and encouraging those that they have already met before. Um, we see that in this word back in 1536, uh, when they talk about visiting that has as its root, uh, the root word episcope, which means pastoral oversight. And it's just to say that Paul is more than just an evangelist. He's a shepherd. He's a pastor here. And he's really wanting in some senses, you can even imagine that for those places that, that he would be able to go back and visit that he already been to, 
He's excited about who he might run into and see again. He's thinking about those people along with all the new adventures that they will have and the new places they will go. So this brings us to verse 6 where this starts. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. This is how this second missionary journey starts. And look, there's a ton in this chapter, and it's easy to blow past these first couple of verses. But I want us to sit here for a second. This is how it starts. It's not 100% certain what this means or why they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. While there are several possibilities, what we do know is from the start, Paul, Silas, and now Timothy were not able to go in the direction that they wanted to go, which would have been the southwest road to Colossae, which they hadn't visited yet, some 150 miles away. And then on past then to go to the coast of Ephesus, which would be another 150 miles. But not being able to go in that direction, what do you do? Well, did you go home? No, they decided to go north. Because that's the only direction they can go in at this point. And perhaps this is where God does want us to go. And this is how, you know, he is telling us what he wants us to do. And so verse 7 tells us they came up to Mycenae and attempted to go into Bithynia. And this was the area where it's home of, of, nice and, and of, of Nicomedia. And, uh, you know, it's a strategic city for the, the, uh, the spreading of the gospel in this region. Oh, of course, I, I, I'm sure this is where God wants us to go. But yet again, we are told by verse 8 that the Spirit of Jesus, again, did not allow them. So then, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. This is not a good start by any stretch. I'm sure they had to be asking themselves, God, what are you doing? Where do you want us to go? What is happening here? Because for all practical purposes, it feels like a train wreck so far. The leader of Jesus' church to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul, is wandering all over the place and seems to have no idea where he is supposed to go. But it's not just how this missionary journey starts. It's what happens to them even along the way that makes this feel like a train wreck as well. It's also who they minister to. After Paul, Silas, and Timothy go to Troas, Paul has a dream where he encounters a Macedonian. This he takes as a sign that they should go further west than they've ever gone, which lands them in the town of Philippi in the district of Macedonia. And this is where we encounter who the bulk of our reading is about, right? And this is who they ultimately minister to. It's a businesswoman from Asia Minor, a slave girl who is demon-possessed, and a Roman jailer. This group of people... Although we're excited to see them come into the kingdom. (laughs) Isn't exactly what comes to mind when you think about building a church. It isn't exactly what comes to mind when you think about some uh, ministry movement that you are now sent out to go and do. And it's not anything personally with them. It's actually how different they are. And Luke points us to that in this entire chapter. They really have nothing in common. Both nationally, socially, personally, the things that they uh, would, would mark themselves out. The social classes that they find themselves in. The things of the day that would give them status and identity. None of that is consistent with the other. Their backgrounds could not be further apart. We look at Lydia, the first person they meet. She comes from Asia Minor. So she is more than likely an immigrant in Philippi, not a native. She appears to be a Macedonian agent of a manufacturer of expensive purple dye 
and Thyatira, an ancient city in Macedonia as well. These dyes were very expensive and they were sought after for those that had the wealth to buy them. Lydia is smart. Perhaps she's even educated. And she mixes with the types of people she does business with. Contrast her within the second person that we encounter, this demon-possessed slave girl. And things get really interesting. You don't get closer to the bottom of society than a female slave. Again, in contrast to Lydia, at this point, they come from two very different worlds. Lydia, who we see as wealthy enough to have a house big enough for her own household, plus that of Paul and their missionaries, their missionary team. Uh, But contrast to the slave girl who owned nothing, um, you start to see... The difference here, as one commentary writes, the slave girl owned nothing, not even herself. She had no possessions, rights, liberty of life uh, of her own. Even the money she earned by fortune telling went straight into her master's pockets. And then finally, throw a jailer in there that Paul and Silas met while in prison. And you've got a real motley crew here to begin your missionary efforts with. Most jailers were once members of Rome's army. His work is in the government service, right? He was a subordinate officer who did his job and went home. As one commentary notes, you might say he belonged to the respectable middle class. So after all the wondering and confusion of where God is leading Paul and his crew, they finally get to Philippi, and this is what their ministry looks like. Three very different people from three very different walks of life. What is this first Bible study supposed to look like? Add to that the false accusations made uh, on Paul and Silas for, quote unquote, disturbing the city, which led them to being beat. Their clothes being torn and then them being thrown into prison. Either Jesus hates Paul and Silas. Or this is what Jesus meant by denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following him. But this is what the gospel mission sometimes feels like. It feels like a train wreck. And sometimes it looks like one too. When you can't tell what God is doing in the midst of you trying to follow him, in the midst of you trying to be faithful, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense sometimes. And it's not always what you expected. You feel lost half the time. Wondering where God is taking you and what he's doing. And when he finally brings people to you, you have no idea how you're supposed to make all of this work. But gospel mission sometimes feels this way. Because this is what being a Christian and living by faith feels like sometimes we can't always see what God is doing in the moment we are just told to trust that he is in fact doing something and what he is always doing whether we know it or not is he is keeping his promises and one of those promises is to unite all of us in him we see this as we move into our second point what gospel mission always does is it unites otherwise ununitable people in him so this is the first point. What gospel ministry sometimes feels like, feels like a train wreck. But this is what gospel ministry always does. If there's something behind it, God is working his plans and his promises to unite all of us in him. 
Paul would have already written what we refer to as the book of Galatians by this point. In chapter 3 of Galatians, he writes this in verses 27 to 28, probably familiar to some of you. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What first looks like a gathering of people who have nothing in common, because that's actually what it is. All of a sudden share everything in common because in Christ they are united together by something much bigger than themselves. And what the Bible is showing us here is that this is how all of us go from having nothing in common to becoming what? Brothers and sisters in Christ. Because unless we are united in Christ, first and foremost, there can be no unity. When we look at the conversions of these three people... They were all so different. While Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and as I mentioned, Luke at times, were at the riverside trying to meet people. They sat down to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of the reasons this is the case is because it takes 10 male Jewish people to to form a quorum to have a synagogue. Paul always goes to the synagogue first, right? Well, there's no synagogue here because there's not enough Jews here. That's probably why they got thrown in jail because Jews aren't necessarily welcome in these parts. So they're doing the next best thing they can do here, which is to go find where people are gathering on the Sabbath. So they, they meet these women who are down by the riverside. This is, this is what God has for us. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. We don't know what God. The text goes on to say the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And I love what John Stott says about this, that perhaps she was first a disenchanted Oriental and was then attracted to Judaism. But still, she was not satisfied. Not until she met Christ, of course. After this, she was baptized along with her household. Lydia then offered her house to stay, which is actually incredible to think about, demonstrating the immediate unity in the gospel she now shares with strangers whom she just met. The apostles returned to the riverside where they had met Lydia and those praying. This time it is a slave girl who had, been, uh, who had had a spirit of divination which brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She's now following them and crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, that doesn't seem so bad when I read that, right? We all need a little fan club following us every once in a while, cheering us on, telling people about us. But that's not what this is. Luke literally describes this slave girl as a pythoness, which F.F. Bruce goes on to explain as a person inspired by Apollo, the god uh, particularly associated with the giving of oracles. And so you see, the idea was that her utterances were straight from the mouth of Apollo. And those who owned her made a good living using her as a fortune teller or a literal ventriloquist of Apollo. And this is helpful to know as we turn to Paul's response here towards her in verse 18 when he says that he was annoyed. Now, a better translation of that is actually grieved. I'm sure he was annoyed, <laughs> but, but, but he was grieved, right? It's a word that denotes a sadness for the entire situation, for this woman's condition and her owner's exploitation of her. 
So in verse 18, Paul turns to her and in the name of Jesus Christ commands the spirit to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Though Luke never mentions it explicitly, it is assumed the slave girl too became a member of the church of Philippi. We are aware of demon-possessed people in the Bible. Jesus encountered many of them. And we may be thinking of, of the man who had the legion in him. And when Jesus came to that shore to see him, he was what, crying out. He, his, his, Luke records him as being naked. He's tearing his clothes, cutting himself, chained. Right? The, we remember the, the people whom he lived with had excommunicated him, had, had basically said, you're dead to us already. Because of what is going on inside you. We can't do anything for you. So they chained him to live out here by these tombs. Until Jesus meets him on the shore. And like that man. The same thing is essentially happening happening here for this woman. The apostle Paul. As he calls the spirit out of her. This woman then is also too going to have needs. Much like the man who is restored that day by Christ himself. She's going to have physical needs, emotional needs, psychological needs, financial needs. How will she eat? Where will she live? This woman will need a new community. She's going to need a church. And in the days to come, what once separated her socially from those around her, her wealth, education, status, freedom, slave-free, All those classes that people fell into will no longer be barriers. They will no longer be the cultural narratives that so often dictate who we spend time with ourselves. Another narrative will take its place. One that begins with, you're a sinner saved by grace too. Gospel mission, or we could also say God at work, feels like a train wreck sometimes. Because it is often in the, he is often in the business of stripping us of our old identities. Of the things that we cling to, of the things that we think matter, right? And he's doing that at the same time while replacing those things that we hold dear with himself. Which becomes so clear in what we read about in the jailer, which is the third person they encounter beginning in verse 25. Paul and Silas are in jail and they're singing hymns. We noted that when Peter was in prison sleeping. It's a beautiful scene, but we must move past it. There's a great earthquake. Verse 26. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that all the prisoners had escaped. Now, why would he be doing this? Well, we've seen this scene before. Go back to Peter in prison. Right? What happens when he escapes is that Herod has those prisoners killed. The jailer knew that if those prisoners were escaped, that he would then take on the judgment that was put on him. And so he thinks this is the end of his life. But a voice rings out. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And see, this is the part, too, that, that gets me. Like, if I'm, if I'm Paul, if I'm Ryan, and I've experienced the injustice of being drugged into, uh, you know, the, 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 the center of the town. I've been, been accused of doing something I didn't do. I got beat. I got my clothes torn. And I got thrown in jail. Certainly, this is God doing me a solid. Right? This is God freeing me. I, I, sorry about all that. We're going to make this right. 
that's not what Luke wants us to see here. Because it's not about Paul. It's about the jailer. Just as much as it's about Lydia. And it's about the slave girl. And so the jailer called for lights. And once they were brought in, sure enough, everyone was there. Having seen this, he breaks down before Paul and Silas. Thinking, I mean, you got to imagine, there must be another way here. (laughs) Having just almost ended his own entire life, which leads him to ask, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what relief there is to hear, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe. And you will be saved, you and your household. Upon his immediate conversion, something profound happens that we don't get in the other two narratives they, the apostles, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in, the, in his house. And he, being the jailer, took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The jailer washes the wounds of Paul and Silas, just as Jesus has now washed his sin by his own blood. It's remarkable. In other words, what's being shown here is the transformation of identity. I am no longer a, a, or just a Roman prison guard. You are no longer just a Jewish prisoner, right? For we have new identities. We have shared identities. We are one in Christ. Because at the heart of gospel mission is a mission that ultimately says this is not about you and it's not about me. It's not about our plans It's not about our expectations for the fall. It's not about our fears even. Or what we think should happen. Gospel mission is about something much bigger than ourselves. It always is. It's about laying down our life. Laying down our narratives. Our identities that control and define us. And accepting the invitation to enter into God's unfolding narrative of redeeming all of human history. Starting with our own hearts. And you see that in every single one of these converts. More so Lydia and the jailer. Luke labors here to show us the transformation that the gospel has in our lives when we become Christians, when we believe in Christ. A transformation that says that what gave me status, what gave me identity and value before are no longer the things that give me those things. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's why he says this. And it's living out right before him. Nor slave, nor free. Nor male, nor female. And you could translate that as whatever we believe about ourselves with our national identity, our political identity, our social identity, right? A transformation that changes the way we see others because the narratives that once defined us and to find others as well, no longer do. A different story does. The story of the gospel in Jesus Christ, a story that takes people with nothing in common and makes them brothers and sisters. Amen to that. So what once felt like and even looked like a train wreck from the beginning is actually the work of Christ In our lives, fulfilling his promises and bringing the world together in himself. It's beautiful. It's messy. It's the gospel mission. 
This is what the gospel mission sometimes feels like, but this is what gospel mission always does, is it unites otherwise ununitable people in Christ. And so I'll leave you here with this question to consider. What, what is uniting us as a church today? And you can think about that locally here at Fort Worth Press. You can think about that nationally if you want to. You can think about that in any general sense of the word church that you'd like. What is uniting us as a church today? Is it Christ? Or is it something else? If people were curious to see how Christians were navigating a world right now that all but looks and feels like a train wreck, right? What would they conclude is the, is the driving narrative of our lives? What would they conclude really matters to Christians? And how they think about others, how they love others, how they prioritize their lives. Would they see unity in Christ and Christ alone or would they see unity around something else? Because for Paul, Silas and Timothy, there is no future church in Philippi if there is also for them Jew and Greek, slave and free. Male and female. There is no future church if what defines Lydia, a slave girl, or a Roman jailer first, is who they are nationally, politically, socially, personally, fill in the blank. And the same is true for us this morning. Those distinctions, though they matter, please do not hear what I'm not saying. Those distinctions, though they matter and are important, they are not the point. And they are not the point, Christian, because they are not what ultimately has a claim on you. It's the life of Christ. Because it is by his blood that we all are made clean and therefore made one together in him. That is who the church is, friends. And that is who the church will be forever and ever. One body united in Christ by his blood. That is what unites us. That is what makes us one. And Christian, you get to rest in that this morning. You do. You get to rest in the reality that that is true for all eternity. No matter what life feels like for you this morning, no matter what happens in November to throw something else in the mix of 2020. Thanks for laughing. You get to rest in the reality Of who the church is for all eternity. We are those whom Christ has a claim on. Because of his blood. You get to rest in the reality. That your circumstances. That your fears. Your uncertainty. What they don't have. Claims on you. But Jesus does. And there's your freedom. And his claims right. His promises which are ultimately shown and given to us in the cross. Right. That is the track we all get to ride on when ours has derailed. May that kind of grace be a reminder for us today of what truly unites us and makes us his people. It makes us one. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. 
I thank you how it, it goes out of its way to demonstrate what is true that though we come into this room centers of what really does unify us from the beginning, um, what unifies us ultimately is your, your shed blood for us. That we have newness of life in you. That, that, that though we come in here from different nationalities, backgrounds, temperaments, uh, character, uh, interests, that all those things be, fade into the background because of who we are together in Christ. That we are all united in you, by you, by your blood. This is the work you're doing. This is the work you promised to do. No matter what life feels like right now. No matter what ministry feels like right now. This is what you're doing. And so I pray for two things. I pray for grace in the moment. I pray for those who are really struggling. To see that and believe that. And I pray that you would also, whether it's through time past, but even in the midst of, of our struggle, that you'd bring people into our lives to encourage us, to show us that no matter what this looks like in our life, this is always true, what's always happening, what you're doing, because that is your church for the rest of history. It is one who has been claimed by you by your blood. We pray that we would know this in new and in fresh ways as we leave here, but certainly, certainly as we come to meet at your table now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.